Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. And I'm Casey Scott. That guy over there fiddling in his chair is Dr. Matt Woolley. How's it going? Wait, did everything get okay? Are you all right? You situated? I don't know why, but I, we have brand new chairs and they're awesome. I just can't get comfortable. You know, and so let, let's just start with you today, okay? okay? Because uh, because you showed up a little bit late. Yeah. Well, and, and that's okay. I have a job. I was working. No, I, I, I get that. Yeah. Uh, but you said you were out doing good. What I is, think so. What does doing good for Dr. Matt mean? I mean, were you helping an old lady across the street? Uh, were you talking to our that. youth? Um, I was helping a mom get some uh, family medical leave act uh, approval time so she could be home with her child who has is struggling with a mental illness. Now, so you bring that up. That's FMLA, and that's the Family Medical Leave Act. Right. And I think it's important for a lot of people out there to understand that that is a resource out there, that it's available to most people if they've got a job. And so what that Everybody, means yeah. and what that means is that you are able to go and do what you need to do to get yourself right, whether that be medical leave in the hospital to get an operation, or maybe go into rehab or mental. That means that what you can, they cannot give your job away. They must right. hold it while you're there getting taken care of. That's right. Yeah, it's a great resource. Um, a lot of people think of it when it comes to like physical illnesses, you know, uh, supporting a family member who has cancer or other medical issues. But uh, people often forget that it's uh, available for mental health issues as well. So, How many times have we had people come on this podcast who have said they didn't go into rehab initially because they felt if they did, right. they would lose their job? Yeah, and in the old days, that was a real risk factor. But, but our argument on the other side of that coin is – if you don't get this handled, you're probably going to lose your job. You're probably yeah. going to lose your job. So that's what keeps addicts kind of uh, on the run or on the go, if you will, because they're trying to figure it out. So at some point, you've got so many plates that are in the air that you're, you're just trying yeah. to keep it all together. Hey, I, I get it. It would be hard to take a time out for most of us with all the family and work things that we do. But sometimes you have to take that time out and get your physical health, mental health uh, treated and squared away. In fact, if I had my way, yeah, Dr. Matt's perfect world. If he was running the world? If I was running the world, we would have regular FMLA breaks from work for people to, to not just sit around at home, but to specifically have programs available for free to help with meditation, mindfulness, uh, therapy, uh, exercise, nutrition, those kinds of things. Uh, would be a regular part of our uh, world, our work world, our corporate culture. Mm -hmm. And you may think, well, that sounds pretty far out there. But the reality is most people who call in sick for work, the the real reason is mental health, not physical health. But mm -hmm. they say physical health because right. they're worried about mental health and what the stigma stigma with that. And when people are given opportunities to do like in-house corporate um, meditation, mindfulness, exercise, things like that, they actually miss fewer days of work and they have higher productivity. So by taking time off to take care of ourselves, we would actually have better productivity in our in our workplace around the world. And so. when you think about it, most people in the job world, uh, if, if they are taking a, a 
a sick day for mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they don't want to talk about it. Or they're taking their sick day and using it as a vacation day and putting it on the front or the back of a weekend. So when they do yeah. finally, or if something happens to get sick, they no longer have that time have available. Yeah. And so I would, this is what I do. I'm, let's do a challenge. We haven't done a challenge for a while. Okay, bring it on. I issue everybody who's listened to this, who has some time in their uh, sick leave at their work. PTO. PTO. Take a day off. Okay. Just for you. Go do something just for you. Treat yourself. Yeah. Yes. Treat yourself. Go go sit in a park. Read a book. Go shopping by yourself. I, take a yoga class. Take a yoga class. Yeah. Go get a massage. Go get a pedicure. That would be fantastic. You, you know, yeah. just to recharge your battery. One of the things I love uh, telling people, mm-hmm. uh, not love telling people, but I tell people often, is that you cannot fill other people's cup if your cup is empty. That's and there true. are so many people around the world today that are trying to fill everybody's cup and not filling their own. Right. And, and, and I don't know if it's because they think it's selfish because they're just taking time for themselves. But don't well, think, think that way. I think either people worry that they can't for their business or their job, or in my world, it's healthcare givers are the worst because we feel like we can't, I can't reschedule patients. I can't not be there for the people that I'm supposed to be there for. So anybody that works in healthcare is probably the most guilty of it. And I will admit that probably for the first 15 years of my career, I was terrible at taking time off. I had never taken more than a few days off in 15 years and I was getting burned out. So I now am more willing to take time off. I took a whole week off a couple of weeks ago to recharge my batteries and, and to do things like not just sit around, but to, to get out and hike and be in nature, got some great meditations in on the lake where I was at. And I mean, it it's, makes all the difference in the world for me to be able to come back and work with people the way I do. And I think that applies to everybody, regardless of what your job is. Do you feel like your uh, vacation recharged your batteries? Definitely. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying is that- I look, saw a bear. You saw a bear? Yeah. It was cool. That's pretty good. Yeah. You know what that statement sounds like? What? So I called my ex-wife the other day, <laughs> and my son Bowden is playing football. Yeah. And I, I called her and I said, hey, uh, how did Bubba, because that's what I call him. Sure. I was like, hey, how did Bubba do at football? She goes, he caught a moth. <laughs> I go, that's the lead story of my son's football practice? Yeah. Well, that's what he seemed most excited about. So yeah. that's what I went with. Yeah. <laughs> I was coaching soccer once and I had a kid run up to me. He was supposed to be out on the field playing. And he, he came over to me, the coach, uh-huh. not paying attention to the game. And he goes, hey, did you know that the sun is a ball of burning flame? <laughs> I was like, that's awesome, buddy. Get back out there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Sports are different for people. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm trying to figure it out and uh, have some fun with my son and make it a, a wonderful experience for him. Yeah. Uh, and whether he's going to do it next year or not, I don't know. Oh, football's great. I yeah. love playing football. This is his first kid. time learning team sports. And like just yesterday, <laughs> that my son's got such insight. And uh, we're, we're coming in the house after football, and I go, how'd it go? And he's like, it was pretty good, Dad. We did a lot of running. And I go, yeah, that's football. And he goes, you know. I don't think the guys on the team get my sense of humor yet. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you know, the stuff that my friends at school laugh at is not the same stuff that the guys on the football team laugh at. Yeah. And I go, well, yeah. I go, do you think it's maybe because we're, we're there for football and not laughing? And he goes, yeah, but I just I don't think they get my sense of humor yet. And I go, well, give them time. And he goes, yeah. that's what I plan on doing, Dad. And I just I love his confidence. He's probably the most social of those kids. So I would actually make him team captain. Yeah. 
Actually, I think he would do be a great leader there, even though he may not be the the most intense player. You know, the calls would be amazing. All right. <laughs> Far left on right. Catch him off on one. Let's go. <laughs> but uh, Well, wait. Now, now hold on. Mm-hmm. Can't get that brain back. Uh, so we're going to ask people to contact us through Facebook and tell us about their day off, their PTO day that they took for themselves. I want you to go out there and fill up I would up love your to cup. hear that. Yeah. I want you to go out there and recharge your battery. I want you to go out there so, and do something that's uniquely for you. If you message us about your day off mm-hmm. and what you did, then tell us what effect you think it had on you. And I'd love to read some of those on the show. You know, and it can be like, I, I know money's a, a big deal right now, and there's not a lot of extra money floating around. So it could be just going on a hike by yourself. It could be just sitting oh, yeah. down in a bath reading a book. It doesn't have to be fancy. It could be catching up on some shows, mm-hmm. just something. I feel like, you know, we do this podcast and we go, it's about addiction, but it's about recovery. But if we could really do it, it it's all about preventativeness. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's what we want to do is we don't want you to, to, to fix something because it's broken. Let's keep it from breaking. That's the better option. Yeah. So if we can get out there and do that, whether it's go to the gym or what, whatever you're into, right? take some time for you. Kitchen I don't, moths. Yeah. Kitchen yeah. moths. That's I, not easy. I, I, I don't think fun. that's easy. Well, I don't know. It seems hard. Yeah. Yeah. Athleticism. You have to have athleticism to do that. He's nimbly nimbly. Eye hand coordination. Yep. He got it. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, he's probably been on the podcast more than any other guest. But for good reason. Yeah. Because he does a lot in our community. And I, I know that a lot of people come up and appreciate what Rob brings uh, to our community here in Salt Lake. Five years Davis ago County. when I started this journey, um, he was probably my first mentor in the recovery world. And it was right about when COVID hit and the world shut down. And we, I've talked about it to lengths that uh, working out is a pillar in my recovery. And the gym shut down. We had nowhere to go. My friend Rob Eastman had a gym, and it was just me and him. And we would go meet there in the morning, and we would work out. I'd put my hands in my hoodie. He'd make me give him 10 push-ups. And it was just <laughs> insane. Uh, but to see Wait, this- is Rob a football coach? Uh, he, he's a wrestling coach. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can tell. That's a that's that's a and, that's a coach move. And I just got thrown in. I'm a head coach for football now. Are you really? That's, yeah, that's what I thought. I've never played before, and they needed a coach. And I asked my boy, and he's like, "Yeah, let's go." Awesome. So, and we, what's amazing about Rob is uh, 14 years of sobriety. That's what you're celebrating, right? Yeah. And our sobriety dates are pretty close. Mine's September 3rd. I think yours is first. the the first. Um, and before we introduce uh, your lovely wife, right? He got married, newlyweds in the house, on top of a castle in a two thousand dollars suit with rain coming down and wind blowing and looking flawless. Yeah, I don't know. How he doesn't, man. <laughs> it's amazing. Yep. Uh, and we're going to find out more about Heidi in just a second. Uh, but we want to talk a little bit about Rob. So, um, you know, we whenever everybody, somebody comes in, uh, I usually bring your name up. And the term I associate with you most is extreme. I think you're an extreme individual. I think you are an extreme addict, and I think you're an extremist when it comes to recovery. And I think you live your life in extremes. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and it's the red hair. It's so. the red hair. It's the fight. It's it, But that's what you, you, you thrive on. You like a good fight. I think when you go through those extremes as a young kid, it's like... People see it as an extreme, but it's just kind of normal to me. Mm-hmm. 
So as you get stronger, you're like, oh, look at all that weight. He's benching. It's like it's just the next step. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. So stream to some. And I know. Laugh. I know your story a little bit, but for those who don't and just joining us, let's talk a little bit about where your story began. And if I remember, it was bullying. Bullying was a big part of your story. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. So I was a tough kid right out of the womb. You know, I had to be, I couldn't self-soothe. My mom would have to tuck me in, tickle me for hours, and she'd finally get me asleep, and she'd say she'd go lay down and come back in a few hours to check on me, and I'd be in a different room. And that's all dandy when you're at home. Your mom loves you. Your siblings love you. But when you get into a school setting and you have to sit still and you have to fall in line and all of these things, it was day one of kindergarten that my teacher's making fun of me, which made it okay for the kids to make fun of me out on the playground, and it just it just progressed from there. I was the smallest kid in the room. I had red hair. My ears stuck out. There was just a lot of easy picks for me. And, and, uh, all you want to do is fit in as a kid. Mm-hmm. And when you don't, you start to learn life skills to adapt, which we, a lot of us call wearing masks. I, I became whatever you needed me to be to fit in. But you also came a warrior. You were a fighter at a small age. Yeah. Uh, you never backed down from a fight. Yep. And that kind of puts you in a different trajectory because now um, you're punching people, you're, yep. you're, you're getting in fights, and do you think you got labeled as a bad kid, a troubled kid, or what do you think the teachers and parents labeled you as? All of the above. You know, my mom loved me, my teachers hated me, some of them loved me. The ones that knew a little bit more about, you know, ADHD was like a... A, a test, a clinical test at that time in the early eighties. And I was in and out of school going to the doctor's office all the time. And, and my mom told me that the school came to them and said, if you don't get this kid figured out, we're going to have to hold him back. And they knew that that would only cause worse bullying of the dumb kid getting held back. So thinking they're getting me help, taking me in and out of school, then kids had asked where I was. And I thought everybody went to the doctors that much. So I told them I was at the doctors. And then they just made fun of me for that. And it just, it just constantly progressed. So, Again, we were talking earlier about people wanting to fit in and all these different things. And it's like, if my friends didn't call me, because my sister's like, hey, I got to be honest with you, you wore people out. I just had one gear and it was fast. And so kids wouldn't pick up for a few days and then they'd, they'd regain their energy and then let me come play. But I was just constantly in, in need. I was that cup with a hole in the bottom of it. And unless people were filling it, I, I, was, I was struggling. And so from that... Um what does your life progress like, uh, junior high and high school? Just a lot of faking who I was, um, doing whatever I could to fit in. You talk about wearing masks. Uh, tell me what were some of the masks that were you were used to wearing. Oh, man. You know, pretending to be a good kid and in church so that the church friends would like me and then pretending to be a gangster so I could hang out with the tough kids and doing whatever the skaters were doing and, and just constantly – I would I would get exhausted by the time I got home. I had played so many different parts that day that I'd look in the mirror and be like, "Man, if they really knew who you were, everybody would hate you." Let me ask you a question: Did you really know who you were? Oh no! Still I mean, is that pretty that common, out. Matt? I mean, for do- what he's describing, it is. I mean, what if you put it all in a developmental context? You know, starting in elementary school, uh, well, starting at home. We, we mimic and learn from our parents and then we go off to school and uh, in that pre-adolescent time, 
we start to develop attitudes about ourselves and then it really takes off in adolescence where we're trying to develop our identity. So they're, they're a field of psychology is identity psychology, learning to figure out who we are. People who don't feel comfortable all through that process in who they are often do wear masks. They try on different personas and hang out with different people. But the problem is you're so distracted trying to fit in with all these other groups that you're not spending any time really on like comfortably deciding who you are. And, you know, and, you know, we have those questions. Am I, am I popular? Am I not? They're questions of self-esteem. And so if you're spending all your time developmentally trying to fit in with other groups and be what they want you to be, yeah, you don't know who you are because you're not putting any time into figuring that out yourself. And so a lot of teenagers do, by the time they get into early to middle adolescence, really struggle with feeling like they know who they are because they've had a similar experience to what Rob's describing. Let me ask you a question because I'm 49 and I'm not sure who I am. I know who I want to be and I know which direction I'm going. Is there a certain age yeah, where that's people not true? <laughs> yeah. Well, I... let me explain to you why I say that's not true. Because there's another part of identity that should be fluid throughout our whole life, like Carl Rogers talked about the process of becoming, and that the healthiest older adults are people that still have the attitude that I'm becoming the best version of myself. But there is sort of a plateau where you're like, I kind of get a sense of who I am. So for you, the reason I can cut you off and tell you that's not true is because if we were to sit and break it down, you'd be very comfortable with a lot of the parts of who you are, you know, as a father, you know, as a partner, professionally, as a person in recovery. Um, And you have that attitude of wanting one of the things that's fun to be around you is you always have new ideas and things you're doing and places you're going. And that's the becoming part. But that basic core foundation of identity, um, Fortunately, most people have it, and and we could work on it more specifically as we get to be adults. But kids who really struggle with bullying, they don't have that foundation typically, or it's very, very rocky, you know, very tenuous. Yeah, I feel like I was in survival mode all the time. It's like, go home, get bullied all day, go home, bully my brother, because I knew I could get away with that. Try and sleep, put your armor on the next day, getting ready to go back to war. And that's what you were. You felt like you were in battle all the time. Yeah. So at what age do you think most people have a sense of who that core self is? Um, You know, so I would say by the time you're finishing your adolescence, then you go into young adult life and the psychoanalysts would say that's uh, individuation time. So you've learned everything from home. Mm -hmm. You've learned everything from your community. You've learned things from your friends. And now you kind of get to synthesize all of that and you modify some of it. You toss some things. Oh, I don't, that's not me. This is me. This is me, but with some changes. And so actually I would say by the time you're in late adolescence, you're ready to do the polishing up. Okay. And so individuation is the next decade through your twenties where, you know, you're really solidifying that sense of self. So it's kind of a long process. But to answer your question, I would say by the time somebody's in their late teens, early 20s, they should have a pretty solid idea of who they are and what they're about. But it needs to be polished up. All right, back to Rob. Uh, At what point did you bring in drugs and alcohol? And when you brought them in, was it out of curiosity? Was it out of self-medicating? What were your reasons? Yeah, so 
I had suicidal thoughts from third grade on. And Which I, is extremely young, but not very uncommon. Well, I mean, fortunately, it's not the norm, but there are a lot of kids in early elementary school that struggle with not wanting to be here, and the ultimate not wanting to be here becomes kind of this suicidal thought. Um, uh, but yeah, it can happen, and to be honest, we should have more open conversations in our families about that. Yeah. So that was one that came to a head one it's night. It's very common, I will say, though, with kids who've been bullied. That is true. Yeah. Came to a head one night when I attempted, and cops took me home, and my dad took me out in the garage and explained to me why we didn't have grandparents and told me his dad drove his truck off of a bridge and his, that his mother committed suicide about a year later. And that's when it kind of shifted from, like, I love my dad. I don't want to hurt my dad. I, that's out of the question now. And the only thing left was drugs and alcohol, and that was a big no-no in our church. And I just couldn't handle the emotional destruction anymore, so I took the lesser of the evils and smoked weed, I think, this summer before my sophomore year, and that's when it, it took all the pain away until it didn't. And then you had a, a wild ride, and mm-hmm. uh, you've got a book that's coming out tomorrow. Uh, the name of the book? Warrior in the Garden. And you kind of uh, talk about all of this in the book. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I went all in. On this, and it's like a lifelong fourth and fifth step in paper for the world to read. Now, for those who don't know, the fourth and fifth step are what? Where you take a fearless moral inventory of your life and become willing to let it go and to tell another human being about it. And it's like, I feel, I know that I'm not the only one that experienced all of the things that I've been through, but not many people talk about it. And if we don't start talking about it, we're going to continuously lose people. We're not going to get a handle on this mental health thing. And for me, my mission is to make mental health an easy conversation. How hard was it to sit down and have this inventory and kind of share these thoughts? I mean, before you answer that question, walk the people at home through the moment you were up above uh, the temple in Utah on a mountain with a gun in hand. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that was the last night. My wife had left. <clears throat> the bank had took everything I owned, and uh, my daughter was like seven months old, and and I got to a point where it was like my daughter deserves better, and that meant me taking my life. And uh, I'm not going to go deep into that story, but um, – that was the night I was going to end my life. And I went up there and, and, uh, said a spiteful prayer. Cause at that point I didn't believe in God. And if there was one, he'd forgot about me. And, uh, I had a little intervention and, and, uh, that's the day my life changed forever. And, uh, that's all in the book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what day was that? Uh, August 31st, 2009. And, um, your journey ever since you've got 14 years clean of sobriety and uh you know we've talked about you being an extremist and you've detailed uh, a couple extreme moments in your life uh of the bad but let's talk about some of the extremely good things that have happened and we'll end with that beautiful wife next to you talking about that story but walk me through some of the other things that have been extremely good that you thought you would never have in this life but here you've had yeah i think it starts with being a being in my daughter's life you know, I thought the adversary or negative energy, whatever you want to call it, had me believing that the world would be better off without me, especially my daughter. 
And you know how our relationship is. She's been the most amazing experience for me. It's taught me more than anything. But then the opportunity, like anybody that hears my name and author or hears my name and working in schools, are just they're like, no, nah, I can't be the same guy. But to have the opportunity to go and share my story and talk to tens of thousands of people each year, especially the youth. And I mean, it started over a decade ago. I'm still getting letters and emails and messages from people that I spoke to freaking 10 years ago in Fillmore and all these places around the world that it's like, how cool is it that by sharing the things that we hope nobody would ever find out are really our best tools. And that's been the biggest eye opener for me where I got to let that heavy bag of shame and fear and doubt, leave it in the corner and just be the best version of myself. Why do you think sharing those things makes a difference? I think that's the one thing like we can brag about the car. You can brag about your bank account, but everybody struggles. That's the one thing humans share in common struggle, struggle, but it's the last thing we want to talk about. So when I get up there, random dude, and share my story, and it connects with people. They'll come tell me things that they've, they've been in therapy for a year, or they've been around their parents, and they haven't told them anything. It's like, you want to connect on a real level. But yeah. we talk and about it on the podcast all the time. People think the opposite of addiction is abstinence, and it's not. The opposite of addiction is what, Dr. Matt? Connection. And you got to be able to find a way to connect. And I think that's why the recovery community is so strong is because all these people have gone through similar struggles. Yeah. And it's the most supporting group I've ever been a member of. And I'm the proudest to be a member of that group. You know, yeah. it, it's amazing because, you know, Dr. Matt, who doesn't have an addiction problem, is surrounded by it all the time. And he says all the time, he's like, I'm blown away by the amazing stories we hear coming out of the addiction and recovery community of them giving back. Yeah. I think it's that the over 40 and really 40 and up, we didn't have much of that talk about your emotion stuff. So there's an inner child, whether we're talking to kids or we're talking to the kid inside an adult male or female, like everybody's dealing with that. And so when you see somebody go up and share that in front of a room full of people, it's like, wait, maybe I can get past this. I want to share this story, and uh, it was a conversation we had off mic, and if you don't want to, we can cut it out. But you said you just got done speaking, and a lady came up to your mom. Yeah. And uh, what did she ask your mom? So I come from a very connected religious community, and uh, I was speaking at a local high school. By connected, what you mean is everybody's in everybody's business. Yeah. Okay. Keeping up with the Joneses. Um, and she came up after and asked my mom, she said, are you just so embarrassed? And, uh, for people and my mom, you know, she's, she's older and we come from because you had just shared your story. Yeah. Said all the, the bad things that I'd done and think how I've hurt people and things like that. And that's where, you know, they, they only hear the bad. They didn't hear the story behind it, the success behind it and things like that. And And what you've overcame and what you're doing now. And, and I feel like that's that's the thing that we got to kill. That's what we're battling. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's it, it's and you, well, wait a second. What did your mom say? She said she paused and she said, "No, I'm I'm really proud of him." There you go. And I think that that's a. Why would your mom be proud though? Your mom's part of that same culture and that interconnectedness. And there's a certain pressure to be accepted and thought well of by our yeah. neighbors, right? Yeah. I think everybody. That's another thing most of us can relate to. So why do you think your mom? 
was was and is proud of you. I think when you peel back the layers, my mom was there through all the horrible, like, yeah, she had to put in so many hours with me as a little kid, but as an adult still acting like a little kid, like she saw me in psychosis and coming off a five-day bender of meth and all these different things in a coma in the hospital. Like for her to be able to do that and then still have these people because we're, we're attached to a political group. My dad was very successful in the community and you, you want to keep up with that name. And I was just out there burning it down. And so to sit there and think about it, I think she had to look back and be like, you know what I've been through and how proud I am that he's standing up on that stage, mm-hmm. you know, and I, she's gotten love. so much better too. Uh, mother's love is a, is a special love. I mean, uh, yeah, for sure. It's an unconditional love, but you know? I think in addition to that unconditional love, I think you're right. Your mom saw you from the little boy who struggled to the young man who struggled to a young man who was up on the stage giving back by being honest and sharing his story. And so yeah. that's that's she's been there for the whole process. And yeah. I can imagine how proud she would be of you, of course. And I don't think when people hear stories such as mine, such as Rob or any addict who's willing to share their story, understands the power of the owning it. Yeah. Of owning your story. Listen to that lady. Yeah, we're embarrassed. We did embarrassing things. Yeah. And, and I'm not proud of it. But I know what it took to get where I'm at today. Embarrassment holds m- most of us back from – it's like it becomes a blockade to further success in life. If you're embarrassed, you don't engage with life in some way or some fashion. And embarrassment is something to abolish. You need to get rid of your embarrassment and be authentic. And that's what, you know, the two of you do and so many people that come on our show do. And that uh, authenticity is that it's real connection. You could connect over how much you both love Metallica or whatever, but that's not deep. That's not meaningful. But being honest about all the embarrassing things you've done, other people go, oh, wow. You know, I've. I can't tell you. I Well, the first time I did a radio show, back when you were the producer of the show, mm-hmm. this other radio show, back in the day. Yeah. 25 um, years ago. Yeah. It's a long time. But uh, I remember that we would take calls sometimes and we'd have these, you know, it was a, it was a morning, you know, alternative radio show. So it was kind of weird to have a psychologist on. But I'd come on, I'd talk about something and then we'd take some calls and we had a uh, Facebook or something and, or email maybe. And somebody had emailed in and they said, I can't believe that other people do what you just talked about on the, is that true? And I emailed them back and I said, I said, yeah, that's actually a really common thing. And I didn't think much of it then, but now over the years I've thought that's everybody, everybody's experience, even as functional adults, we think, well, I'm the only person mm-hmm. that does this. Like nobody else would have that thought. Nobody else would do that thing. You know, nobody else has this shameful problem that, so I'll hide it. And when you get out and talk about it, and that was one of my first times talking on a really big stage, you know, beyond just the the clinic um, to to people that were doing different things in life. It was amazing to me, and it, and it has been sort of a theme of mine ever since, that I want to help everybody understand that, yes, what you're going through may seem private, and in, in ways it is unique and personal to you. But so many other people are doing similar or same things. And when we connect and really open up and get past our shame and embarrassment, it's powerful. 
And talking about opening up and getting past your shame, uh, you've done that in spades because you've done this book. And uh, yeah. So why the book? Well, I've been every time I spoke from the very first time to to when I finally ended up signing the dotted line was they're like, do you have a book? Do you have somewhere where we can read this? Do you have. And for me, every time you think about school, I get man PTSD, get the sweats. Like I was not a good student, like English. Eh, like, I don't know how to write. I, I can't sit there that long to write a book. And it just came down. That's why I started my podcast. It's like when my dad passed, we didn't have a recording of his voice. We didn't have any journal entries. We didn't have anything. So I'm like, if I were to die today, what does Sophie have? So I wanted her to know who and what I was through the podcast. And then as I got going on that, it just kind of came to a head where I'm like, you know what? I need a, as much for me or my, my daughter, my grandkids, whoever may read this, like I want to be the vulnerable tool to show them that they can do hard things do bad things and overcome it. And uh, went to a writing retreat and found that I was able to do it and spent the last year and a half digging deep. And it was probably, man, I, I went and did dictation for eight days. And those eight days were the hardest eight days I've had in a long time. You know, you think you've worked through your stuff. But then to go and interviewing ex-wives and letting them tell their side of the story without standing up for myself, letting them, it's like, there's my truth, there's your truth, and then there's what actually happened. That's kind of what this, this book's like. And knowing that I've grown to that place where I don't have to defend that anymore. I've done everything I can, cleared my side of the street. But as I went through that, it was uh, super hard. And very healing. And I got to a point where it was like in chapter like 25 talking about something pretty, pretty private that I didn't know if I was going to put in the book or not. And I ended up putting it in there because if it could happen to me, it could happen to anybody. And I remember reading it in the in the paragraph as the chapter came out. And I was just like, I, I kind of went into a deep depression. Like people are going to read this. Like I just put my life on blast. And I'm like, you know what? It's been therapeutic enough for me. I'm just going to put it on the shelf. Get one copy, give it to Sophie, keep one for myself and be done. And uh, my publisher reminded me this book isn't for me. It's not about me. So that connection of just being a voice for the mental health people and recovery people and sharing a story. It's everybody's story. Like we were talking about, I was unique Nobody understood me when I, in my first rehab and they make you go to AA meetings and I'm just head down, just bad attitude. Couldn't identify with anybody. And I'm hearing this person and she's talking. I'm like, yeah, you know, kind of nod my head. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and finally her story was like, it was my story. And I look over and she was like 80 years old. We're all the same. Yeah. Everybody, some people hide it better. Yeah, well, I remember my first 12-step meeting. It was the first time I didn't feel alone in my addiction because I was surrounded by 30 other addicts who just couldn't figure it out. And for the longest time, I would stare in the mirror. I'd look at my friends or people who could drink like normal people and go, why am I broken? You know what I mean? What's, well, I mean, how come they can do it and I can't? What's wrong with me? And now I know that there's a lot of other people who are battling it just like me. So I think this book's going to do amazing things. But not only did you write a book in the last year and a half, you fell in love. That I did. Introduce us to your wife. This is my beautiful, amazing new wife. 
Name's Heidi McNulty Eastman. All right. Swing the mic over there. Heidi, did you know who Rob was before you met him? No, I didn't. Um, I was married for 15 years, and my husband uh, killed himself in front of me and my three boys. Um, And so, obviously, for me, mental health is a very important piece of our life and a very important piece of my kids' lives so that we can do what we can to, to make sure that never happens again. Um, but I was really looking for someone that was very mentally well when I started dating. That was a big key piece for me. And so the work that Rob had done to heal himself and work through his wounds and come out, you know, stronger was really important to me. Um, and so we actually met on Tinder. Mm. Um, there's a funny story behind that. Not sure how much you want me to go into it. Well, All the way. I, yeah, All I, the way. I love a good Tinder story. So does okay. <laughs> So Rob had seen me at a wrestling tournament. Um, I'll let, do you want to tell that part of the story? Sure. <laughs> oh, I feel like Chuck Woolery. Yeah. We'll be back in two and two. <laughs> For you younger guys who don't so, get that, that's a dating show. <laughs> So I was at a, a big tournament at the Legacy Event Center in Farmington, the big, huge rodeo arena, right? And I'm getting called down to go coach one of my kids, and I and I saw her. And as I walked by her, she was just amazing. I felt this energy, and I looked around, and I'm like, I'm going to go find that woman. And I just felt something, and I went down, and I came back up, and I couldn't find her the rest of the day. And I did look. So as we're leaving, it's like, that's like at 10 a.m. And it's like 7 p.m. And we're getting ready to leave. And I'm walking up the stairs and she's standing there, but now she's with her son and what I know now to be her parents. I'm like, I can't just walk up and creep on this lady who's standing there. So I went out to my car and I'm like, I'm going to wait for 10 minutes. And if it's supposed to happen, it'll happen. And uh, she didn't come out. <laughs> and then like a month later, I saw this picture on on Tinder and I was like, man, she looks super familiar. And we started talking and... We couldn't figure out how we knew each other. And then I'm like, hey, I got to go. I got to go to wrestling. She's like, oh, my boy wrestles. And I'm like, oh, that's probably where I've seen it. She sent me a picture of her that day. And I said, this is going to sound kind of creepy, <laughs> but I've been waiting for you. <laughs> for 10 minutes outside of the Legacy Event Center. Well, and on my side of the story, so I was on the dating apps and, you know, swiping 100 times left for everyone, right? Right. <laughs> and it felt very superficial and just not really what I was looking for. And I got a message from a medium on Instagram randomly that said, you need to think outside the box. And so I took that to mean in dating um, because I had been looking for over six feet and had to be an entrepreneur that would understand, you know, finances and money because I had done pretty well for myself and wanted to make sure I was finding an equal. And um, and I was only on Bumble so that I had to start the conversations. No one could just like randomly message me. So the next day I signed up for Tinder and Rob commented on a picture and I never respond to people that comment on my pictures. And I responded and we agreed to meet up and he's like, how tall are you? And I'm like, 5'8". And he's like, oh, I'm 5'8". And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And I'm like, I got to think outside my box. <laughs> and I'm I'm super happy I did because, you know, he's not he's not what I've always dated. I've, you know, I've dated guys that were like 6'6 and 6'11 and like, you know, really tall guys. And it I always thought that I would be insecure and he just... We're just perfect for each other. Well, I've loved to watch a relationship unfold on uh, Instagram and Facebook, and it culminated with a wedding uh, where? 
in Scotland, Sterling, Scotland. So Rob is a direct descendant of William Wallace. You and cannot fight! <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> and so we uh, got married in the crown of the William Wallace Monument. Wow, wow. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, now you guys are starting a life together and moving forward. And uh, what do your kids think of Rob and his story and his tattoos and all that? So tattoos were not, you know, I, I have some tattoos. My late husband had tattoos. Those didn't scare us. <laughs> um, I think he came into a really difficult situation. You know, um, my oldest and my youngest are lovers and they just instantly loved him. Um but my second child wasn't really ready for me to date, wasn't really ready to move on. And he really associated me dating with me, you know, forgetting about dad. And um, so Rob came into a pretty hard uh, intro with my second son. But he's also – my second son's a lot like me and Rob. He's an extremist and, uh, you know, does everything to the extreme, including acting out or, you know, pushing limits. Um, and Rob just – sat down with him and has worked with him really well. He volunteered to be his football coach and spends, you know, 10 hours a week just with him with football. And um, so now Cole loves him. Um, but it, it, Rob had to put in a lot of work. Well, luckily he's uh, known for working with the youth and very great with oh, that. He, I couldn't have found someone better to to work with this type of child and someone that you know, struggles or, you know, ha has some internal struggles going on. I love that. So, Rob, what's up next for you? Uh, the book comes out. Uh, are you still working in the recovery community, still working with kids? Yeah, so I work with kids um, and really just looking forward to getting back to speaking, get back into the schools that way. Um, I stepped down from the high school wrestling coach because my daughter's going to be wrestling for – Fremont, so I'm going to go spend some time. And then our boy Caden wrestles for Mountain Ridge. So we're going to be all over the place here in, in a month. Um, but, yeah, that's a – I think we've talked about it before. This is – I'd do it if I was homeless and I'd do it if I was a billionaire. So this is just a, just who and what I am. What advice with 14 years of sobriety underneath your belt, what advice would you give to somebody out there who's battling addiction or for somebody who loves someone battling addiction? And if I've learned anything over the last 14 years working with people and families and things like that is you can't do it for them. You can love them, but it's like everybody's looking for the quick fix. They don't want to take action. I think, you know, having boundaries, setting them up with the best environment possible, but as dark, like I, I can't imagine anybody being as dark as I was and not ending their life. Like I've been to the absolute darkness and now I have the most amazing life I could ever imagine. It's crazy it's like, because I remember when I was in uh, addiction and they would go, what do you want your life to be like in five years? And I've said this on the podcast before. I go, I just want it to be okay. I don't, I don't, I don't even care if it's great. Awesome. I just want it to be okay. And they go, now times are by 100. I'm like, you are crazy. There's no yeah. way my life is going to be as good as I would ever had it. Yeah. And here I am telling you now, my life is better now than I've ever had. And I'm looking at you, and your life is now is better than you could ever imagine. Oh, yeah, way out of the spectrum. But I think that's it is if, if you're listening and you're struggling, get out of your own way. 
When I when I quit being the pilot and I became a co-pilot, my life went well. If somebody could direct my energy and I put all that nervous energy into something instead of 50 different ways, they just gave me direction, everything went well. It was nice because if it didn't go well, I had somebody to blame. But what happened is everything did go well. So I was like, I'm good over here. Take the steering wheel. I'm sick of wrecking the bus. I mean, I love it when Rob comes in, Dr. Matt. Uh, High energy, positive. And insight. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of times um, when we're sitting in the uh, 12-step rooms, uh, the people will say certain rules, like, unless you got two years of sobriety, don't speak. Yeah. And, and for me, because I was new in it, I wanted to hear from the guy who had five days. I wanted to hear from the guy who had 30 days or a year. But there is some wisdom that comes with somebody who's got 14 years. Well, I think uh – not to brag on Rob too much here because I don't want his head to get too much bigger, but uh, I think one of the things that Rob has a talent for is staying connected to the process. So I, I think you want to get to a point where you have five years, 10 years, 15 years, the rest of your life in sobriety. But a lot of people get out there and they kind of forget, I think, they don't relate to what it's like to be struggling in the same way that you do when you're a year out or two mm-hmm. years out. And I think that one of the reasons that Rob is so successful in working with youth is because he has that ability to remember what it's like to be young and to be struggling. And um, I find that in my field of work with psychologists, the, the folks that can't do that shouldn't work with kids. Um, it's like teachers who hate kids. Like, yeah. Why did you pick you forget, that job? Forget what <laughs> it's horrible. like to be the kid who is bored out of their mind and, and you know, making trouble in class. Um, and, and there's a relatability that I think Rob brings to his talks that people get as opposed to an older person talking down to somebody who is struggling. And there's a big, big difference. That's why most addicts want to work somebody who's been where they've been because they feel they can relate to And somebody to who's still knows yeah what it's like to be there so rob you had one of my favorite sayings all time uh, i remember hearing it the first time when you had the podcast um and it's about a warrior in the garden how does it go you want the full thing yep it's all not right. the barbershop one no nope. i like that one no nope. so okay. the student asked the master you teach me to fight but you talk about peace how do you reconcile the two and the master replied it is better to be a warrior in the garden than a gardener in a war and for me that just like I spent my entire life running from my anxiety, from my depression, from who I really was, all these different things. When if I just would have sat down and dealt with the cards that I or deal the hand that I was dealt and learn more about myself and be prepared and deal with all these things and things could have been a lot different. So as a parent, I prepare Sophie for guys like me. And to know that life's going to suck. And rather than protect them from it, I'm preparing them for it. And I think that's just the biggest thing for me. And so the name of my book, it was just a no-brainer and it needed to be Warrior in the Garden. So throughout the book, we talk, we, I share my stories and things like that. But then also some of the lessons that I wish I would have had or known or that people could apply in the moment. And where can people get this book? It'll be on Amazon tomorrow. For a dollar ninety nine for the digital copy, and uh, and then a few weeks later in the in the paperback. So for twenty four hours only, a dollar ninety nine on Amazon. So tell your friends, tell your uh, buddies, tell your loved ones to go out there and get this book. Yeah, this is something that you got to know. It's my story, and it talks about religion. It talks about schools. It talks about pretty much everything. It's pretty 
pretty full. And uh-huh. yeah. Is it okay for me to tell people that I've read it? Yeah. I've yeah, read it. I was honored that uh, I can't remember how long ago it was, but you asked me to do a proofread, and I had I sat and read it uh, over a weekend. I couldn't put it down. That's the truth. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the fact that I knew you and knew your story. But even though we had you on the show and we've talked about your story, and I know what you do now, there were it, it was a much deeper dive into that whole process and. It was it was fun for me and kind of in, to read about you, but it increased my admiration for what you do uh, to get in and really understand your story. So, if I can, if it's okay for me to give an endorsement, I personally have read the book and really enjoyed it, and would definitely recommend it. Appropriate for what age? Man, these young kids are getting older. See, that's Find an interesting question, don't you think? Yeah. Because I mean, we used to we used to put ages on like what's appropriate, what's not. But you know what? You might say, well, that's that content of of a of a story or a book or a movie isn't appropriate for a ten year old. But you know what? That ten year old might already be smoking weed. That ten year old yeah. has already been exposed to pornography. Yeah. That ten year old is going through a lot. So me, I, I think it's an interesting question that maybe we have to. Yeah, reevaluate. I'll, I'll tell you this. I tried not to swear too much. There are some things, some raw things, but just that were my real life. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that a 10 year old knew every single word in the book. Cause I'm not academically smart with big words. And if I read a f- few pages and there's five words that I don't know, I'm putting the book down. So the smart people, they'll know what we're talking about. And the other kids like me, they'll, they'll understand the entire story. I love it. So We'll put a link here below this to make sure you'll be able to get it. Rob, Heidi, congratulations on your marriage. I'm so excited for you guys. And I can't you. see, I can't wait to see what you guys are going to do together. Yeah. We'll, we'll Dr. See. Matt, anything left for the, the newlyweds? <laughs> Just congratulations. Uh, thank you for putting uh, the videos and the pictures on Instagram. It was really fun. It was almost like being there in Scotland with you guys. What a beautiful setting and congratulations. Thank you. And thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. He's extreme, man. Do you get it? Extreme. <laughs>